Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Part 2, Precision Medicine in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Implications for Molecular Testing and Treatment, is provided by Axis Medical Education and supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Genentech, Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Robert Macharna. Hello and welcome to part two of this educational activity entitled Precision Medicine in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Implications for Molecular Testing and Treatment. I am Dr. Robert Mocharnik, Emeritus Professor of Clinical Medicine, and I am joined today by Dr. Hossein Borgai, Professor-in-Chief of Thoracic Oncology at the Box Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Here is a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are currently in development. Here is our financial disclosure information. Here are the learning objectives for this activity. Today in part two of this activity, we will review and evaluate the most recent data and recommendations and provide expert insights on targeted therapies for the treatment of advanced and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer that are currently available based on the presence of identified mutations and gene rearrangements. Dr. Borgai, as we reviewed in part one, there are many gene alterations in non-small cell lung cancer that impact therapy selection once identified through molecular and biomarker analysis. Will you take us through the available targeted therapies in advanced and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer and briefly review the most pertinent data and guideline recommendations that support their use? Let's start with EGFR mutation positive disease. One of the best studied pathways in all of oncology is the EGFR pathway. In lung cancer, this has a uh, significant uh, place because it's one of the first mutations that we were able to identify, these activating mutations in the EGFR, uh, that actually helped us figure out who are the patients who respond to EGFR-targeted therapies in terms of the oral agents that we had available. Uh, and this came as a result of uh, several lines of investigation, uh, well-documented. But what you see in front of you are basically a number of trials over the last few years that have been published with different um, EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors for patients with specific EGFR mutations. And many of these are phase three studies, have a comparator arm. Uh, but in all of these, basically what we are finding is that patients that have an EGFR mutation, they get the targeted therapy, they do better uh, at, uh, compared to patients who get chemotherapy. Um, the field has advanced to the, sta to the stage that we actually have first, second, and now third generation oral TKIs. What are the differences? Well, the first generation TKIs were erlotinib um, uh, and jafetinib. These were uh, reversible inhibitors. The second generations include mostly mefatinib, um, maybe acomatinib. These are irreversible. And then third generation is osimertinib as the only third generation drug that we have in clinical practice right now, uh, which is also uh, an irreversible inhibitor of tyrosine kinase uh, um, uh, uh, pathway. Uh, and it's significant, again, to look at the number of studies that have been done with all of these agents. Again, all of them showing superiority of oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors for patients with activating EGFR mutations compared to chemo and other drugs. 
this is the, the basic uh, principle of uh, first, second, and third generation drugs and some of the characteristics as I spoke to. Um, now, where are we now? Well, we know first and second generation drugs like Jafetinib and uh, Erlotinib work really well. Then Osimertinib came to uh, the scene. Initially, Osimertinib was for patients who had developed a particular mutation called T790M, um, which we normally uh, were discovering following treatment on Erlotinib or Jafetinib. Uh, and this drug showed really good clinical activity there, but it was pretty obvious that osimertinib also had activity against uh, uh, EGFR uh, mutations in patients who were treatment naive. So Flora's study was a, a randomized phase three trial that compared osimertinib to either Erlotinib or Jafetinib. So the efficacy, uh, as you see on the left-hand side, is the PFS. On the right-hand side was the interim uh, overall survival, all indicating that osimertinib was actually superior to either Erlotinib or Jafetinib when it came to treatment of patients with EGFR mutations. The updated information in terms of the overall survival is shown on this particular graph with longer follow-up. We now have a median survival, almost 39 months for patients uh, who uh, were treated with osimertinib versus about 32 months for patients who were treated with either uh, erlotinib or EGFR. And at least in um, uh, most parts of the world where osimertinib is available, the results of the study led to a switch uh, from using either jafetinib or erlotinib uh, first line to using osimertinib uh, first line, definitely in the U.S. and in my clinical practice for patients who have an activating EGFR mutation, osimertinib is the drug uh, that I use for their treatment. Well, the drug is um, effective. It works a little bit better than erlotinib and jafetinib, actually a lot better. What about toxicity? Well, this is a table from uh, the original presentation indicating that if you do head-to-head -head comparison in terms of some of the more common toxicities that we associate with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, the rash and diarrhea and things like that, um, osimertinib was uh, slightly better uh, tolerable. So it doesn't mean that the drug doesn't have um, uh, side effects. Every drug, unfortunately, has some degree of side effect associated with it. Uh, what the table tells us is that compared to the first-generation drugs, osimertinib seems to be a better agent. So toxicity is better, clinical activity is better. And what I don't have on these slides is the fact that it also has intracranial responses. So uh, patients with the brain metastases can actually respond, which is a big deal in the world of non-small lung cancer, especially for patients with these sorts of mutations. So um, Overall, if you put all of that together, it sort of indicates that osimertinib is a really good first-line option for patients with an activating EGFR mutation. Um, the problem is that, unfortunately, we're not curing our patients with EGFR mutations. So um, eventually, there is disease progression. And uh, the question then becomes, why is the disease progression? Well, as a result of multiple biopsies done at the time of uh, uh, progression for patients who are on osimertinib, now we see, as you can see on this slide, uh, that there are specific, if you want to call it, sort of bypass mechanisms where uh, the tumor can actually escape control uh, uh, as a result of treatment with osimertinib. And some of these um, uh, cannot be addressed. So 
about 15% of our patients end up having a med amplification as a resistant mechanism to osimertinib. Uh, another 2% might have a HER2 amplification and other uh, uh, pathways can be altered or affected, again, as you see on this particular slide. So why is this important? Two reasons why it tells us that we should biopsy our patients at the time of progression on osimertinib to figure out if they have one of these alterations. Why? Because if they have one of these alterations, we can actually address it uh, uh, right now in the form of clinical trials, but there are um, hopefully down the road uh, going to be protocols where we can offer our patients uh, if they have one of these uh, alterations. And we're going to cover some of those in a couple of slides. Um, The other um, important thing that has happened in this field is uh, shown on this slide. This is the uh, design for the ADORA study. This was uh, an adjuvant clinical trial for patients who had surgically resected a non-smuscle lung cancer with activating EGFR mutations. Uh, They could uh, get adjuvant chemo as per the standard of care or not. Uh, And then they were randomized to receiving osimertinib versus placebo, which is doable because in the adjuvant setting, we don't really have as a standard of practice anything after adjuvant chemotherapy. Primary endpoint of the study was disease-free survival. This was just presented at the virtual ASCO in 2020. And the study actually had to be held early because of the significant difference in disease-free survival seeing patients treated with osimertinib compared to the placebo, as you see on this particular graph. This has led to a lot of discussion in the field as to whether this is enough for us to switch our patients after adjuvant chemo and offer them osimertinib. Right now, we don't have the approval in the adjuvant setting at the time of the taping of this program, but that might change. But the question then is, is this enough or should we have some overall survival data to uh, compel us to change the treatment uh, for this particular group of patients? And that's something that we're still debating. The the discussions are ongoing. The study is ongoing. And hopefully over time with more follow-up, we'll have a little bit more clarity. But I think this is something that we should be aware of because we could potentially have a practice changing uh, protocol uh, based on the results of this study. So uh, what do we do for patients who develop resistance? Well, um, first of all, there are a number of different strategies that we have undertaken to see if we can uh, improve the time that patients are actually receiving osimertinib. Uh, One approach is to use uh, anti-angiogenic agents. This table uh, covers a number of different studies that we've done with, for instance, allotinib plus bevacizumab, trying to see if there is a way for us to improve on uh, the outcome, uh, either the survival or PFS or things of that nature. And just uh, like we saw on the prior slide where we were using, for instance, a lot nebid bevacizumab in this ECOG-ACRIN study, ECOG-ACRIN 5182 uses osimertinib plus bevacizumab, again, as a method to see if we can delay the progression. The other method that has uh, been uh, publicized and discussed uh, is combination of an oral TKI, in this case, Jafetinib, plus chemotherapy. There are two studies, one from Japan, one from India, both large randomized phase three studies, both of which show the superiority of the combination with chemotherapy over TKI alone for management of patients. And again, uh, this is something that's been debated as to whether a chemo combination would be a more appropriate way of going uh, because of the improvement in uh, um, overall survival and PFS that's seen in some of these studies. And again, more investigations are underway here. 
Um, but one way to overcome, uh, for instance, resistant mechanisms that might arise is depicted on this slide. This is from a larger study using osimertinib in combination with several different agents, in this case, selumetinib, which is a MEK inhibitor, suggesting that patients who had evidence of disease progression on osimertinib when treated with a combination actually did have responses. Now, the number of patients in the study is a little bit um, uh, small and obviously has to be extended. Uh, there's always toxicity to worry about, particularly in the in the in a combination setting, um, and there are different strategies to see if we can overcome some of these toxicities. Uh, but this is just an example of some of the efforts that are on the way to see if we can either delay progression. Uh, using uh, VEGF inhibition or addition of chemotherapy, or when progression has happened, is there a way to rescue some of the patients uh, with very specific pathway inhibition, for instance, MEK inhibitor or MET inhibitors? And, and there are many examples of these kinds of studies that are ongoing at this point, and we'll see what the results are. Um, so these are some of the key ongoing studies with osimertinib. Again, this is mostly for your reference, just to let you know that there is uh, this is an area of active uh, clinical investigation. Well, what about some of the other alterations? For instance, exon 20 insertion. Uh, this is a pie chart of all the EGFR mutation subtypes, uh, exon 19, for instance, that we're all familiar with, the uh, L858R. And these are the majority of the activating mutations that we see that are um, uh, targeted with the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. But you see that about 10% uh, or so of our patients actually have these exon 20 insertion mutations. Over the years, a number of different agents have been uh, tested uh, with mild to moderate activity. Um, and again, uh, these are some of the studies that um, uh, have been previously presented at various meetings. And you see the numbers, the number of patients participating in these studies who are a little bit on the smaller side. Um, but there is an intense interest to come up with specific treatment options for this patient population. And when we talk about the HER family of receptors, there are actually four separate receptors that we are talking about. And if you uh, concentrate on HER2 uh, directed therapies, uh, you'll see that this is, again, another area of active clinical investigation because we have uh, many drugs in this category. And actually, we do have um, many patients who could qualify for these sorts of treatments. So, as far as HER2 directed, that antibodies are concerned. There are two antibody drug conjugate. One is uh, a, a TDM1, which uh, for those of you who take care of patients with breast cancer also, uh, you know that it's commonly used there. And the other one is sort of a newcomer, uh, trastuzumab, deroxtecan. The other antibodies include trastuzumab and pertuzumab. And then as far as uh, um, small molecule inhibitors are concerned, uh, there is a growing list and some of them are shown on this particular slide. Next, let's talk about ALK rearrangement positive non-small cell lung cancer. Well, ALK is another uh, major, um, let's say, alteration or translocation that we actually look for in patients with uh, non-small cell lung cancer. Again, the list of ALK-directed therapies seem to be expanding. We have really good drugs in this category, including lectinib, brigantinib. Uh, of course, the first drug was quizantinib, which basically changed the field. We now have lorlatinib. All of these drugs have either undergone extensive clinical investigation and are available as an FDA-approved drug or undergoing additional uh, evaluations. And I think the big question here is, is there a 
a drug that you have to start first or is there a drug that you go to in a second line? So I think for most of us, selectinum at least now seems to be the drug that we choose when we have somebody uh, with non-small lung cancer who has an out translocation. Um, uh, again, this drug has undergone several clinical investigations, including a head-to-head comparison versus quizantinib, which sort of was the uh, prototypical ARC inhibitor that we were using in the beginning. This is the result of the ALEX trial. Again, clearly indicating that electinib is superior to quizantinib for patients who uh, are newly diagnosed with an out translocated non-small cell lung cancer. The PFS curves are shown there uh, for your evaluation. Um, brigatinib is another drug. It also has gone uh, under um, a number of clinical trials, including head-to-head comparison to quizantinib. Uh, this was the ALTO uh, one uh, first-line trial. And again, showing really good clinical activity uh, for uh, uh, patients who are treatment-naive comparing brigatinib uh, to um, quizantinib. Uh, again, there are a number of these drugs. This is a slide uh, uh, from uh, Dr. Leroy Horn's presentation. Uh, last year's ASCO sort of comparing responses, medium PFS, and safety uh, for some of the more commonly available drugs. And again, you see head-to-head comparisons. And there is a little bit of a difference between the cost of some of these drugs. Uh, so that might become an issue down the road, um, given the way the healthcare system is moving. Um, so the, the issue here, again, is very similar to what we get with patients with EGFR mutation. And that's the, the, the fact that, unfortunately, we're not able to cure our patients with a diagnosis of an out-translocated non-small cell lung cancer. So what happens? Well, resistant mechanisms develop, again, much like what we saw with EGFR mutation, except that it's not so much that there are various pathways that are altered, although there is evidence for some of that. But as you can see on this table, uh, as a result of treatment with specific um, uh, drugs, patients may develop specific mutations in the binding pocket, uh, and um, that might make the patient not respond to uh, specific ALK-directed uh, therapy that they're taking. This table provides us with some um, way of trying to manage these uh, uh, progressions. Uh, this particular slide and publications here seem to suggest that we should biopsy patients at the, at the time of progression, and I do agree with that. Um, you have to look for specific mutations to try to see if you can match the mutation with a particular drug. As you can see on the table here, uh, lorlatinib, which again is one of the um, uh, out-directed drugs that we have available, does seem to have good clinical activity against the majority of the mutations that we can detect. Um, so this becomes important because if someone has been treated with uh, a couple of different lines of uh, treatment, uh, in, it, it allows us to go to another drug that should that could. Uh, potentially control the disease and give us good clinical activity even after one or two lines of treatment. And this is what's shown on uh, this particular slide. This is uh, lorlatinib's clinical activity. Um, again, what you see on the table on the right-hand side is that uh, patients with uh, uh, brain metastases can actually respond. So intracranial responses have been established. Again, this is a smaller study. And nonetheless, it suggests that patients who've had a couple of lines of prior um, ALK tyrosine kinase inhibitors can, in fact, respond to uh, lorlatinib. What about ROS1 rearrangement positive patients? 
ROS1 is, again, another one of the uh, alterations and rearrangements that we look for when we have somebody with a diagnosis of uh, advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and under this category, I think there are a couple of studies that we should consider. First of all, um, drugs such as seretinib and crizotinib do seem to have activity. And then we have a drug, interactinib, that also seems to have really good activity against ROS. Uh, so what is ROS? It's another rearrangement that we see in about 1% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, there seems to be uh, an enrichment, again, in younger, never smoker patient population. Uh, there's usually very little overlap with other oncogenic drivers. Uh, Crizotinib, the same drug that we were using in the uh, uh, initially, at least in the ALK, uh, uh, translocated tumors does seem to have activity in ROS. And again, that's shown on the, on the waterfall plot and the overall survival curves, as you see there. So uh, this has been a drug that, again, we've used, uh, or I've used in my clinic for patients that we identify with ROS, with the ROS1 alteration. The uh, other drugs, again, are shown in this table. Uh, so brigantinib, seretinib, interactinib, and a couple of the other drugs that are being tested. You notice that some of these drugs, we've been able to generate data in terms of uh, the drug having activity in patients who were pre-treated with other tyrosine kinase inhibitors. In that category, lorlatinib and repotrectinib are the two drugs to sort of keep in mind for your patients with ROS1 uh, translocations that have been treated with, uh, let's say, for instance, uh, chorizontinib in the frontline setting. Um, and again, here, uh, the, the key thing is to identify patients or identify drugs that could be active in, in patients who have already been treated uh, with, a, with a oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, so uh, this um, uh, slide here shows you uh, that lorlatinib could have an overall response rate around 27% in ROS1 pre-treated patient population, and repotrectinib can have a response rate in the order of about uh, 50% or so, so um, I think this is good news because for a while we did not really have um, a lot of options for our patients with ROS1 alterations after crizotinib, but seeing that some of these drugs that we already have at our disposal for use in other uh, diseases and other settings could in, fact have, could in fact have activity in ROS1, I think is um, important. Uh, what about the safety? Again, most of these drugs seem to have a very similar safety profile, although, as you can see on this particular slide, the interactinib and lorlatinib and repotrectinib seem to have a little bit less in terms of side effects. Majority of side effects are thankfully in the grade one and two, which again, still can have an impact on patients' quality of life. Um, and I think we do have to pay attention to it and learn how to manage some of these toxicities. But in terms of uh, the kind of toxicities that are severe, leading to discontinuation of treatment, we don't see a whole lot of those. Again, all of these drugs, unfortunately, have some level of toxicity. And again, being familiar with how to mitigate and how to manage these toxicities becomes uh, really important. What can you tell us about a relatively new target MET-Exxon-14? Well, I think uh, MET uh, is one of the pathways that we've had a lot of interest in for a very long time. 
Um, I think one issue with MET is that um, there are many different forms of MET alteration. Uh, what uh, we're going to talk uh, today is uh, first MET exon 14 skipping mutation. Um, and under that category, there are a couple of studies that I think we need to discuss. To discuss. It is important to notice that cabmatinib has been approved for treatment of patients with MET exon 14 skipping mutation. So what are these? Um, again, these are uh, considered to be rare mutations about three to four percent of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Although if you have somebody with a sarcomatoid lung carcinoma, uh, the rate of finding a MET uh, exon 14 skipping mutation can be as high as 30 percent depending on the literature that you're seeing. So uh, I mean three to four percent is uh, enough for us to say that we should be able to identify these patients. And again, if you go back to the part one of the discussion, using a broad next-gen sequencing panel is important to be, ident to be able to identify these more rare mutations. The drug is cabmatinib. It's been around for a while. It has good activity against MET. Uh, and what led to the approval of uh, cabmatinib in this setting is a geometry study. Uh, this was a phase two study uh, uh, looking at patients with advanced non-small lung cancer with a MET exon 14 skipping mutations. There were multiple cohorts. What we are showing here are cohorts four and five. Cohort four were patients who had prior therapy and cohort five uh, are patients who were treatment naive. A um, little bit of a smaller table, but the point is that whether you're looking at patients with uh, treatment naive or prior treatment, cabmatinib uh, works, and the response rates are shown and highlighted there. Um, it does appear that if you identify patients who are treatment naive and offer them cabmatinib, the uh, response rates seem to be a little bit higher compared to the prior uh, treated patient population. Um, I think if you look at the waterfall plot, again, you get the sense that majority of patients who are treatment naive have some level of response to it. And this is, uh, uh, again, uh, the, the durability of responses seen with this particular drug uh, in both cohorts. And uh, as far as I can tell, these are really good durable responses. What about toxicity? There is some prophylodema um, associated with the use of this drug. Uh, you notice that grade three or four prophylodema was reported and about 8% of patients who receive this drug. And again, there are uh, various ways of managing the peripheral edema. Um, geometry also uh, had another um, study looking at MET amplified, which is another way of detecting MET. So we have uh, MET exon 14 mutations, and then we have MET amplification, and that's determined by gene copy number, as was done on this particular study. And again, this has multiple uh, cohorts, um, as you see on the particular slide. So again, responses seem to be very reasonable, uh, regardless of the cohort that you're looking at. Uh, and again, the side effect profile is very similar to what we saw initially. Uh, there is about 8% profile edema, some nausea and vomiting, uh, as far as the side effect is concerned. What treatment options do RET rearrangement positive patients have? The other newcomer in terms of a new approval is, of course, um, uh, RET. Uh, RET has also uh, been a, a pathway that's been of interest. Um, it is one of those um, sort of what we call tumor agnostic alterations. These fusions uh, can be found in patients with papillary thyroid, obviously non-small cell lung cancer, and a number of other malignancies, as you see on this particular slide. 
<clears throat> Liberto study uh, investigated the clinical activity of uh, sulpercatinib or LOXA-292 in patients with red alteration. Again, um, I've combined all of the, uh, the trial design and the clinical activity in one slide just for ease of reference. Uh, and the bottom line is, as you can see, uh, this is a highly active drug. Again, patients, uh, whether they had prior therapy or they were treatment naive, responded to sulpercatinib uh, rather nicely. And again, this is a, uh, the drug that's available for us. Um, I would emphasize, I know this is becoming a little bit repetitious, but we do not use these broad uh, 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 platforms, we're not going to be able to find the fusions that we need, and these patients do really benefit uh, from the use of these drugs. Uh, and again, this is just a duration of response on PFS with uh, sulpercatinib uh, as per the uh, most recent ASCO presentation. What about toxicity? This is a table that, again, we have from, from the poster. Um, I draw your attention to the fact that now we have a database of about 530 patients, and you notice that there, there are very few grade threes and four toxicities, uh, but there is some grade one and two toxicities, mostly diarrhea, dry mouth. There is a little bit of a hypertension uh, that we do have to pay attention to. Um, but again, most of the other uh, side effects are uh, easily manageable. What about BRAF V600E mutation positive patients? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So BRAF is uh, an interesting uh, mutation. We all know that you can find BRAF mutations in patients with melanoma. Uh, obviously, in lung cancer, uh, BRAF V600E has been identified. And again, um, the rate is about 2 to 4% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer, perhaps 2% of uh, adenocarcinomas. And why is it important to find this? Uh, again, it's because we have really good effective drugs. Uh, and again, some of the references are shown here on, on this particular slide. Uh, but uh, what we uh, have arrived at is the fact that a combination of two targeted agents, the rofenib and trametinib, is what we need for treatment of patients with VRAF V600E mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, the brofenib by itself can have some clinical activity, trametinib by itself can have activity, but the combination for this particular mutation leads to particularly good clinical efficacy with an overall response rate in the 60% range, as you see based on this Lancet Oncology uh, publication. The median PFS was around uh, 10 months uh, when uh, patients were treated with this particular combination with really good durable um, responses. Again, uh, some patients were treatment naive, some had received prior therapy, and again, uh, there does seem to be clinical activity regardless of line of therapy. And again, these are the list of the targeted therapies, and in the interest of time, again, we cannot cover all of the data that's out there, but just to reference that uh, these drugs have been investigated with good clinical activity. NTRK is an interesting and newer concept. Can you talk briefly about NTRK gene fusion positive tumors? Um, NTRK is another one of these uh, alterations that um, is uh, sort of pan-tumor. Um, interestingly, this one, uh, the, the NTRK fusions can be found in both um, adult and pediatric cancers. Um, and the list of uh, malignancies that can potentially have NTRAC fusions, again, are shown on this slide. I'm not going to go over the list, but this is really just uh, for, for your infor information. A couple of drugs under this category, uh, latotractinib and entractinib, 
uh, as you can see, they both have been heavily uh, investigated, um, uh, going over larotrectinib, um, highly active and N-track fusion positive tumors. Um, and again, you see that on top of the, this particular slide, a number of different malignancies have been tested as part of these trials. Again, just because this is a sort of a pan-tumor uh, fusion and the clinical activity is obviously overwhelming and really impressive. Entractinib is another one. Um, you can see activity across many different tumor types as long as you can find the alteration. And again, it's shown here with a response rate approaching 60%. Um, this is uh, from uh, the New England Journal publication of uh, latotrectinib in tract fusion positive uh, uh, cancers in both adults and pediatric, again, showing really good clinical activity with very durable responses and a very impressive progression-free survival, all of which leads uh, to um, the fact that, you know, we need to be able to identify these patients. And again, going back to the part one of the discussion, yes, it's a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit more difficult. You're talking about mutations. We're talking about amplifications. We're talking about fusions. So you really do need to ask your pathologist and your molecular lab to um, uh, be certain that you can identify these alterations. This is again from the table that was published in the Journal of Medicine, indicating really good tolerability of this particular agent. Um, and again, uh, latotractinib and entractinib are the drugs that we have. Uh, this is a little bit of a head-to-head -head comparison, but obviously we don't have a formal trial head-to-head -head comparing, so we're doing cross-trial comparisons, uh, showing both are highly clinically active. And finally, what options are there for patients who do not have any of the previously mentioned mutations, rearrangements, or fusions, but do express pdl one you know, talking about uh, biomarkers, the other one that we um, also uh, talk about a lot and use in the clinic is PDL1. Um, the PDL1 uh, test um, has been again debated um, since its introduction when we started uh, talking about immunotherapy. Uh, and it's it's an IHC-based assay, and I agree that it's not a perfect biomarker, meaning that there are patients with low expression PDL1 that respond to immunotherapy. There are patients with high expression who sometimes, unfortunately, do not respond. So we know that tumor heterogeneity exists, and it's not a perfect marker. However, the overwhelming amount of information that's out there, in my opinion, suggests that PDL1 can be a fairly decent marker in identifying patients who actually can benefit from immunotherapy. Um, and I think there's a long list of clinical trials that have looked at uh, markers, uh, uh, this PDL1 marker. And, and I again fully agree that there are different tests for different drugs and it adds to the confusion or discomfort with PDL1. But nonetheless, regardless of the PD1 or PDL1 inhibitor that you're looking at, uh, PD1 expression does seem to correlate with clinical efficacy for these uh, drugs. So it's definitely um, something that we need to have. You can make treatment decisions based on it. For instance, if somebody has really high PD1 expression, uh, you could potentially offer them single agent immunotherapy and uh, not have to go the chemotherapy route. On the other hand, the data suggests that if the PD1 is not really high, uh, then uh, a combination with chemo plus immunotherapy can be more effective than chemotherapy. So there is a role uh, for uh, PDL1 expression. So what are some of the key points and key takeaways? Again, 
much like what we discussed. If you don't test patients with a broad uh, uh, platform, you're not going to identify them. If you don't identify them, they cannot benefit from these targeted therapies that we have, and these are really good targeted therapies. The list of fusions and amplifications and mutations is growing, uh, and I think it, it requires um, an active participation by uh, multiple groups taking care of patients with non-small cell lung cancer, as we had discussed previously. Um, I think the field uh, for EGFR mutation is still evolving. Um, whether we're going to use chemo combinations or REGF inhibitors plus is something that clinical trials that are ongoing will address. And as far as ALK is concerned, um, is there a one single best drug to start with? We don't know. Uh, clinical trials hopefully will uh, get, show us the way, but right now we have really good effective therapies for these patients. Uh, rare fusions uh, such as NTRAC need to be identified because, again, we have highly effective drugs, well tolerated for this patient population. So, again, if you don't look for them, you're not going to be able to find them. And keep in mind that a lot of these drugs do have really good intracranial activity also, which I think is really, really important for our patient population. Um, therefore, again, identifying them and offering them the best treatment option is the way to go. Uh, and then finally, PDL1. Uh, I think uh, it's a newcomer, so to speak, uh, but there's more and more data uh, that is accumulating around this, and potentially there will be other biomarkers for immunotherapy uh, in the coming years. And with that, I thank you for your participation. Thank you, Dr. Borgai, for that excellent review of the numerous targeted agents and immunotherapies available for the treatment of advanced and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And thank you to our audience for your participation in this activity. This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.